Open your Bibles with me to the Old Testament book of 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 15. Last Sunday we ended in chapter 1446 with the people of Israel intervening on behalf of King Saul's son, Jonathan. And actually saving his life from the foolish vow and edict of his father during a battle with the Philistines. So if you look back into chapter 14 from chapter 15, go to verse 47. That's where we'll begin today. And in verse 47 we come to a paragraph which is really a summary and a wrap up of King Saul's reign. His story, though, is not over by any means, but David's history becomes the major narrative for chapter 15 all the way through 2 Samuel. The last paragraph of chapter 14 seems very surprising after what we've already learned about Saul, and then chapter 15 tells the tragic story of how and why God rejected Saul from being king over Israel, which, of course, then leads into David. So here in between, the extended account of some of Saul's most foolish behavior and then God's rejection of him and subsequent turbulent and oppressive relationship with David, we find this positive account, a brief positive account of the reign of the first king of Israel. If you're able, would you please stand as I read 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 47, through the 11th verse of chapter 15, beginning here in chapter 14, 47. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkashua. And the names of his two daughters were these. The name of the firstborn was Mirab, and the name of the youngest, Michael. And the name of Saul's wife was Ahinoam, and the daughter of Ahimaz. And the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner was the father of of Abner, the father of Abner was the son of Abiel. There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul, and when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive, 
and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. So first we see here Saul's brief historical record in verse 47 through 52 of chapter 14. And what do we learn about Saul's reign as king from this outward historical perspective? Because you realize that's what this is, true? This is the outward record. What everybody sees on the outside as far as what, is he, what he accomplished. Well, we see that throughout he had to deal with the enemies of Israel on every side. Moab to the southeast, the Ammonites to the east, Edom to the south, the kings of Zobah way up to the north, and the Philistines to the west, and the Amalekites to the southwest. Middle East hasn't changed much as far as these issues go. The text says that wherever he turned, he routed them, and he did valiantly, and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. And in verse 52, we read, There was hard fighting against the Philistines for how long? All the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, what did he do? He attached them to himself. We also see a few details about his family here in verses 49 through 51. He actually had four sons. One of them is not mentioned here, but it is, he is listed in 1 Chronicles 8, 33 and chapter 9 verse 39 of 1 Chronicles, that's Abinadab. But the sons listed here are Jonathan, Ishvi, and Malkashua. Two daughters, Mirab and Michael, his wife, Ahinoam, his uncle Abner, who was also the commander of his army, his father Kish, and Kish and Abner's father, Ner. We've already gotten a large dose of the inside story of Saul, have we not, in this book? And we've seen that in that inside story, there have been several tragic and detailed examples of him not submitting to the Lord. And we also know that his refusal to obey the Lord was an accurate picture of what the real inward condition of his heart was. As we read this historical but brief record, set right in the middle of the inside true story of his disobedient heart, there's a lesson here, an important lesson for all of us. And that is a person's life is finally assessed not by family status, position, worldly achievements, success, vocational prowess, or anything else. It's only finally assessed by the person's relationship to the Lord, their creator. A glowing resume is not what ultimately matters. What you have done, as far as the world's eyes are concerned, is not what really matters. What matters is if that person does not believe in and know their maker. 
And that message screams out through this whole passage about Saul. Now here in chapter 15, we see how and why God rejects Saul as Israel's king. Which means the stage is then set for God to choose a king after his own heart, who would be David. We're going to take our time in chapter 15 because there's so much here that we need to understand at a very deep level. And in case you didn't realize it already, this is one of the most debated and troubling passages in the whole Bible for a lot of people. This chapter begins with the direct and clear instructions from the Lord through his prophet Samuel to Saul about what he should do concerning the Amalekites. Then we read exactly what Saul did in verses 4 through 9. And this is followed by the Lord's perspective communicated to Samuel in verse 10. And then we see Samuel's personal, there's not a good word for it, agitation in verse 11. And that's as far as we're going to get today. Next week we'll begin working through the extended confrontation between Samuel and King Saul. So first, we see here the direct and very clear instructions from the Lord through his prophet Samuel to Saul in verses 1 through 3. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. And now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. The New International Version says, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel, so listen now to the message from the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, what matters in this chapter, if you look at the whole chapter, is whether the king, Saul, will submit to and obey the Lord. That's the theme of this passage. However, as we dive in here, some of us, maybe many of us, are probably not bothered nearly as much by Saul's partial obedience as we are with what? The Lord's severe command. So let's address that first, or try to. Three thoughts to start with, then I'll try to explain. This is shocking, especially to Americans' ears, but it is shocking. Our claim is that Scripture is true, not that it is sanitized or made more acceptable by removing unpleasant parts and features. And thirdly, the Lord's vengeance is what this is a picture of. And it should not be repudiated or apologized for if it is virtuous or just vengeance, which means just vengeance in the sense of justice from God himself. God is punishing the Amalekites, who are a nomadic people south of Israel, for what they did to Israel right after the exodus from Egypt, when Israel was passing through the desert. 
Amalek attacked even before they got to Sinai. And Moses writes in, De- in Deuteronomy 25, verses 18 and 19, this. They, the Amalekites, met you along the way and attacked all your stragglers from behind when you were tired and weary. They did not fear God. When the Lord your God gives you rest from all the enemies around you in the land of the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance, blot out the memory of Amalek under heaven. Do not forget. Deuteronomy 25. So, in God's timing, the day had come for Amalek's judgment at the hand of King Saul. Who would have expected that? The basis for the Amalekite King Agag's execution is given in verse 33, in case you want to look there. One uh, commentator asked this question, Is Yahweh not slow to anger? When he gives them 300 years to repent. That's how long it's been. So the purpose of Saul's offensive was divine judgment. And expressed here, and as expressed here in chapter 15, Amalek had continued her wickedness all this time. And the measure of God's wrath was now full. We should note also that the only kind of holy war condoned today for believers is spiritual. As Paul explains in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18. Why? Because no nation today, including America, can ever claim the title of God's people engaged in legitimate holy war. And therefore claim the right to the kind of comprehensive destruction of an enemy that we witness in the Old Testament. The two purposes of such all-out Old Testament holy war were, first, the preservation of Israel, and second, the execution of God's judgment on wicked nations that had fallen under God's wrath. Today, reflecting on the horrors of Old Testament war, we must remember the reality of God's coming judgment, which will be, if anything, Much worse. God is a holy God, and his fierce anger burns against all uncleansed evil. Revelation 19.15 tells us that when Jesus returns in judgment, quote, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. William Blakey Blakey has another reminder for us. He he writes that, that that God will execute wrath on the impenitent is just a much is just as much a feature of the gospel as that he will bestow all the blessings of salvation and eternal life on them who believe. It is most wholesome for all to look at times steadily in the face of this solemn attribute of God, his perfect justice, as the avenger of the impenitent, for it shows us that sin is not a thing to be trifled with. It also shows us that God's will is not a thing to be despised. Have you noticed, too, that It is precisely in God's vengeance that his people find comfort. If you've read the Old Testament at all, you can't miss this. And in fact, the appeals in the New Testament letters to people who are under suffering point 
to God's return in this regard in many, many ways. God does not forget how his enemies have hated, trampled, and crushed his people. In Isaiah 35, 4, one example is, is one of the multitude of passages that echo this truth. Say to those who have an anxious heart, quote, be strong, fear not. Doesn't stop there. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Because we breathe the air we breathe in modern Western, not modern anymore, but Western society, we, we don't hear this when we read it. It doesn't fit the parameters of any politically correct speech. And yet it is all over the place if you pay attention. No vengeance on God's enemies from the Lord means no deliverance for his people. God's suffering people, that's the key. God's suffering people have always understood this. Maybe this illustration will help. At least it'll make some of you smile a little more than you're doing right now. This is tough. Some people put beware of dog signs on their houses and fences. But the sign on the Lord's kingdom reads, Beware of God's flock. Rulers and nations who read it should shudder, especially if they have touched and butchered the sheep of his hand. And when Christ returns, he's returning to judge, and it will happen. Take a deep breath. What did Saul actually do? Verses 4 through 9. Well, he did a lot right. He immediately got after it. He summoned the people and put together this large army. By the way, the word thousand in Hebrew can also be translated as a military unit. So there there is a question on the numbers, but that's still a lot of military units, which would mean it is a huge force. And when about ready to attack the city of Amalek, we read something strange here, do we not? We read of Saul's kindness towards a group of people who had showed Israel kindness after they'd left Egypt in the Exodus, the Kenites. There's no account of this in the Old Testament, in case you're trying to find it, except that Moses' father-in-law was a Kenite who had helped Moses after a battle with the Amalekites. And you can... Find that out in Judges 4.11 and Exodus 18.1-12. But here in our text, Saul lets the Kenites get away from the Amalekites before he attacks. That adds a little twist to the story, doesn't it? Then we read in verses 7-9, through 9, And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. 
All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. Saul again, even in doing the will of God, managed to willfully disobey the Lord's clear instructions. Sparing King Agag and the best of the sheep and oxen and calves and lambs and all that was good, Saul would not utterly destroy them. What does that mean? Just what it says. He did not want to, so he did not. So, then we see the Lord's own commentary in verse 10 and the first part of verse 11. Very short, very to the point. Now remember, in chapter 13, Saul offered the sacrifice on his own rather than wait for Samuel as he had been told to do. That meant that Saul would not be allowed to be the founder of a royal dynasty, which the Lord communicated through Samuel as well. No dynasty. Saul, but he's still a king. Now, in chapter 15, Saul willfully disobeyed God's clear instructions by not utterly destroying the Amalekites, and this leads to Saul being told three times here in chapter 15 that the Lord has rejected him as king. No more the king. So in chapter 13, his dynasty will not happen. And here, he will not be the king. So in verse 10, Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. Right off the bat, I want to make clear that this phrase, turn back from following me, means that he has disengaged and he is going another direction. And that has been stated by God. He has displayed this attitude already several times. But this is where it really comes into view. A lot of times our hearts are not uh, seen to be what they really are by everyone else. This is being made clear now. Although everybody else has seen plenty of examples. The Lord is telling his prophet Samuel this because it is through Samuel that Saul will be confronted about his disobedience and then rejected as king. Sign up for that job. We immediately, after we read, I regret that I have made Saul king, have many questions in our mind. Because we immediately want to know how God can said can be said to have regret or repent of his actions. This even gets more interesting and maybe more confusing when we go on in chapter 15 and find the same term twice in verse 29. And again in verse 35. So if you're, even my memory, I think I can remember that. 11, 29, 35. Hike. To get a better idea of what this all means, let me summarize the rest of this chapter. Just summarize it for right now today and read verse 29 and 35, so you can see the context of all these verses. So if you're already doing that, back up, listen, I'll read them again, because this is important to get. 
We're going to end today, as you notice, with Samuel's reaction in verse 11b, the last part of verse 11, and what God tells him in the first part of verse 11. And then Samuel confronts Saul, and Saul offers all his excuses for disobeying the Lord. Samuel then quotes Old Testament passages and identifies Saul's sin and how serious it is. Ending with verse 23 with the first pronouncement that Saul has been rejected as king. Saul offers a semblance of confession. But Samuel declares God's edict again the second time. As Samuel turns to leave, Saul grabs Saul grabs Samuel's robe and he tears it. Samuel, in verse 28, and for the third time, tells Saul that God has rejected him as king. Can you see what's going on there? He doesn't take this too well and he tries to salvage the situation at the last moment. The very next verse, verse 29 after this third pronouncement, says, And also the glory of Israel, which is a cool ancient name for you-know-who, the great Almighty, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Saul tries some more to get this reversed but to no avail. Samuel himself then does what Saul should have done to Agag. We will save the gory details for next Sunday, if we get that far next Sunday. And then they each left in different directions in verse 35b, and we read, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. Now remember, let's remember how this word can be translated. This term can be rendered as relent, as change one's mind, as have pity or compassion, be sorry, or have regret. Did you see two main thrusts of meaning for that term there? Relent, change one's mind. Over here. Have pity, compassion, be sorry, or have regret. Over here. It's kind of, these kind of go together, these kind of go together. Changing, relenting, regret, sorrow, pity, compassion. And they're used that way many, many times in all those ways, in several different ways like that through the Old Testament, that Hebrew term. And the English Standard Version Study Bible actually has one of the most succinct uh, explanations that I found after a week of going blind looking at every possible thing I could possibly find on this. As usual, the context of these three verses, 11, 29, and 35, shed much light on this question that we have. Verses 11 and 35, first one and the last, describe God's own feeling of sorrow or regret that Saul had turned out as he did. But get this, not even addressing the question of whether God knew it beforehand, doesn't even address that question. Verse 29 strongly states, that God will not regret or change his mind concerning a decision once he has made it. 
So, in other words, in our verse today, verse 11a, in that verse, God feels genuine sorrow when contemplating Saul's sin. But that does not mean that he thinks his decision to make Saul king was a mistake in the overall course of his plans for history. He does not make mistakes. It fits his plan in the course of history. It fits his plan of redemption. But sin still grieves him greatly. This is the first king, but this is the king that the people of Israel had demanded, one like all the nations around them. And you can especially see that when you read it again. I regret that I've made Saul, and this is right after he'd spared and not followed his instructions. And I always wonder at the end of verse 9, all that was despised and worthless they devoted. Sounds like us. In fact, a lot of this sounds like us. We've all been there. Well, I'll just obey partly, and then that'll appease him, and, you know, I can say I obeyed him, which is what he's going to do here in the rest of the chapter. But right after that, I regret that I have made Saul king, as God tells this to Samuel, for he has turned back from following me. It's obvious he's going the opposite direction. Lip service, show, religious stuff, so the people will think that he is serving me, and he has not performed my commandments. And then if you read verse 35, And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death, but Samuel grieved over Saul. And the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. You see which meaning by the context this is? The distress of Samuel we see in verse 11b. And we close today by seeing that distress doesn't even come close to describing him here, does it? And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. That word angry, it means fury. It means being lit up. As furious and lit up as Samuel is here, he did take it all to the Lord. All night long. All night long. We don't know exactly who or what Samuel was angry with here. Exactly for sure. There has been so much written about this, conjecture after conjecture after conjecture. I'm just going to have a list of a lot of possibilities because this is deep. This affected his soul. This guy has been a hero since he was born because he loved God and he served him and he served him humbly. And we don't know exactly whether Samuel's angry with those situations or even who or what situation exactly as he cried out to the Lord all night. But what are some possibilities? Well, the first one is obviously he could be angry at God. God had raised Samuel up. Partly 
to anoint the first king that the people had demanded to have. This goes way back. He could be really angry at Saul. I'm trying not to say who wouldn't be. He could be angry about the whole situation. He could be pleading with God about forgiveness for Saul, for the nation. We've seen that in Israel's leaders. New Testament leaders. Our leaders. He could be thinking about himself crying out to God for the endurance that's going to be needed the next day when he knows he will confront Saul. How do you react when you know ahead of time about a meeting coming face to face with somebody that you know rips you up? You do not sleep that night usually. And you plant the seeds of stomach ulcers and every other problem internally known to mankind. This is hard. He could be crying out to God about God's plan and the revealing of it, the way that it has been revealed. We don't know everything. Samuel doesn't know everything even though God spoke to him as his prophet to deliver messages. God, did you have to do it this way? That's our number one cry to God in anger right there. I got a better way. I would know we don't really say that, but that's what we mean. Why did you let this happen? Why? Why am I going through this now? I've been serving you since you called me in that temple when I thought it was Eli. And he said, No, go back and listen again. <laughs> Could be. It could be, what now? Where are the leaders going to come from for Israel? There are none. The nation was in such a precarious place. Now, I would tend to vote if we're going to do it as all of the above in some degree for each who knows but he had a lot of good reasons to cry out to the Lord all night did he not and we can't just read this coldly this is lit up in fury we've got a picture of what that looks like but not many of us go to God with ours we take it out somewhere else And as we start next week and we read about this confrontation, it is amazing the questions that he asks and how God uses him to bring out the truth from Saul. Because this guy is excuse city when he gets confronted. We should also realize that the introduction of the monarchy and the anointing of Saul are the greatest acts of Samuel's life up to this point. His whole life was involved in this and have meant so much to him because it all required so much, what, sacrifice on his part. And now the king is rejected? What now? Has my whole life been for this? Uh, I think a lot of Old Testament prophets demonstrated this particular characteristic. 
What would his involvement be? Seemingly in every national crisis continued, or am I out to pasture, or what? We don't know. But the personal cost of ministry is definitely seen in the life of Samuel, especially in this passage. One part of one verse. But it is enough, isn't it? And you know what? It's not just the personal cost of ministry that we're talking about here that is his, but it's the personal cost of each believer's calling in life no matter what it is, and that cost can be costly. True? Everybody has situations that you're in where you must do the right thing before your God because you want to serve Him, and it tears you up physically to to consider how to do that. Every one of us. It's especially in times where that cost is felt in unsuspected and surprising ways. You know, we didn't expect this to happen. We didn't expect to have to do this. We didn't expect to have to follow through. We didn't expect to have to write that letter. We didn't expect to have to actually go talk to them. We didn't expect to have to deal with it at holidays. We didn't expect, 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 expect. The list is endless. But it's especially in those times that when we are in them, if we cry out to God and we leave it, we, we take it and we leave it to his throne, Take it to the God who made us and who called us. And then the sheer magnitude of what he did for us as we contemplate and make ourselves think about that. As we cry to God for the Spirit to give us the strength to think about it. To make it clear enough where we're not just groaning in our prayers, although that works, when he knows we can't even articulate it. And then we see the sheer magnitude of what he did for us. Christ came willingly to suffer the most inhumane, barbaric death devised by man. God sent his son to go through that, to humble himself, be born as a baby, in a human body for sin? To pay the price for sin? And the more we consider that, what happens? The more we consider that, it does overwhelm us. It's not just something we say off the top of our head. The more we consider that, it quiets us. The more we consider that, it calms us and gives us the rest our souls need because we are looking at God Almighty. And he has us. And nothing can take that away. Samuel got through this. Since we spent, I'm not even going to say how long in Hebrews, I thought I would close with a verse that speaks to this. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, so that you won't grow weary and lose heart. Consider him. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we as
admit, confess that we don't know (laughs) close to anything. about your ways even though you have communicated to us everything we need to know about you and your ways in your word through the creation that we look at and its grandeur but specifically in the words of of scripture And we need to start there, oh God. And so many times we jump right past that with our demands and uh, our critique. And we miss the point of who you are. And your character, your unfathomable love to have sent your son for us. And we can't make sense so much of the time of understanding you as that loving God who's also just. And what that looks like. And yet you give us your word with these pictures and these true stories and uh, we butcher them so much of the time because they don't tickle our ears. They don't, they don't come out the way we'd like to see it come out. And yet when we step back and look at this, uh, we see the majesty of you as our almighty God in so much clearer light. And we know that one day we will understand but you've given us enough right now to rest on the truth that we know about you. And we ask that your spirit would enable us to do that. And we thank you for giving us scripture that, that, is, that is real. It's the real truth about you and about us and the world we live in. And we pray that we would be so thankful for your grace to us in Christ, Jesus, your son, that we would be able to, by your grace and empowerment of your indwelling spirit, to always think of you as good and holy and righteous and faithful and just. So God, we... We look at these passages and and in a new way we can say, come, Lord Jesus, come. Thank you that you have placed us in Christ, united us to him. What a safe place to be. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Please stand for our benediction. The grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. You're dismissed.